Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to make a few announcements. As you know, the prime directive of podcasting is don't send your listeners to another podcast. But I'm going to break that prime directive and I'll take my chances. I had the occasion to meet up recently with Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison of the Greatest Generation podcast, which you can find at gach.biz. You know how to spell that. They're currently taking their podcast on the road through the northeast of this great land of ours, and there are still tickets available. I'll warn you, some of the shows are sold out, so if you want tickets to their great show, you need to get it right now. To do that, you can go to bit.ly forward slash ggtour. 2017. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash ggtour2017 to get tickets for their premature assimilation tour. If you like that joke, you're going to like their show. It's a very funny show, and they are great guys. A good show. Um, adult show. A little more adult than this show, but a great show nonetheless. So again, if you want to get tickets to the Greatest Generation Premature Assimilation Tour, it's at bit.ly forward slash ggtour2017. And I will actually have uh, audio from the interview with me and Adam and Ben up on our next show, next week, our supplemental show. So look out for that. Also, of course, our live show from Convergence 2017 is available on our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. You can sign up to contribute to our show for as little as $1. You get access to our live show. Also, you get access to my Klingon Christmas Carol diaries. Eh, diaries is probably too intimate a term, but it is a production diary of me being the director of the Klingon Christmas Carol production at the Mounds Theater in St. Paul this Christmas. And you get access to my audio mini shows featuring DS9 recaps. That's right, I'm going back and I'm watching the entire series of DS9 from beginning to end from Emissary to what we leave behind. It's going to take a while, but I hope to have a little fun. It's going to be mostly me and possibly some guests, so you get access to that, to the production diary, and of course to our live show and future live shows if you are a member of our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. And one more announcement before we begin our mission. Enterprising Individuals is, of course, a member of the Just Enough Trope Network. And there is a new show I want you to know about on the Just Enough Trope Network. It's called Craft Services. It is a quote-unquote bad movie podcast where we look at the movies that critics rejected but audiences embraced. Here's a great example. Uh, Teen Wolf. Not a great movie, but a movie you remember, right? You watched it growing up. Everybody knows Teen Wolf, Urban Surfing, the whole deal. And guess what? It's only like 47, 46% on Rotten Tomatoes. How is that possible? How can a movie that we all remember, and if it was on TV, you'd watch it, be so poorly rated by critics? That's what we talk about on Craft of Services. Every week, I and a rotating panel of movie experts talk about some of the best movies, the best worst movies of our pasts. What it is we love about them and why it is the critics said, no thank you. Um, Our first show is already up. It features Punisher Warzone, which is a great example of a film like that. We have future shows featuring movies like Willow, the aforementioned Teen Wolf, and sometimes we do do actually bad movies like Ballistic X versus Sever, which is 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, is famously probably the worst reviewed movie of all time. 116 people said, no thank you. So if you like movie talk and some of that aforementioned adult humor, tune in to Craft Disservices. You can find it at Craft Disservices, two S's into services, at least in the middle, dot com. You can also find us at Craft Disservices on Facebook, at Craft Disservice, no S, on Twitter, and on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play. Search for Craft Disservices. Check that out and keep it real. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. 
I wanna know what you're thinking There are some things you can't hide I wanna know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and I don't always order an increase to Warp 6, but when I do, I expect to hear, I serve full impulse. I'm joined on this episode by Mark Giller, author of the futuristic thrillers Hammerjack and also Prodigal. He also wrote the novella Revenant for the Seven Deadly Sins Trek anthology. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about Conspiracy, the 24th episode of the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, which features Picard and the Enterprise racing to stop a takeover of the Federation. It's a companion piece of sorts to the earlier first season episode, Coming of Age, in which Admiral Quinn has Lieutenant Commander Remick investigate the Enterprise. And space bugs were behind it all? We talk often on this show about how, especially in Trek's early seasons, the show was still finding its way and still experimenting, and sometimes that experimentation led the show down some curious paths into curious choices. There were some stories that may have been sci-fi, but they weren't Trek, and that's something we'll discuss over the course of this show. But first, your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Well, I'd uh, been into Star Trek for a very, very long time. Uh, you know, came to it uh, through the original series uh, reruns, uh, which uh, used to run on our local WTOG Channel 44 station every day at 5 o'clock. <laughs> sure. And uh, I just got to, got so into the show, uh, even though it was only three seasons worth of them, I just kept watching them over and over and over and over again. And I'm not exactly sure what fascinated me so much about it, but there was just something about it that spoke to me. So. Uh, it just uh, was a really, really big part of my life for a very long time. And uh, back when I was in high school, uh, I was kind of dabbling around with wanting to be a writer. Uh, and uh, of course, the first thing that came to mind was, hey, why don't I write a Star Trek novel? So I ended up uh, spending the uh, summer, uh, since I was you know, pretty uncool and extremely dateless uh, before my <laughs> senior year, uh, working on a Star Trek novel, uh, which I called Flying Dutchman. It was a mess. Uh, absolutely no doubt about that, but it was uh, it was a real blast to write, and I managed to get it done in three months before school started. And okay. I was just, you know had this manuscript, and, and was just in front of me it was Star Trek and all the things that I'd ever wanted to do, and uh, you know I was just amazingly proud of myself, even though it was an extremely bad piece of work. But uh, that was a <laughs> thing that really got me started in writing. So uh, I'll always be uh, forever grateful to Star Trek for that. Back in the early days of TNG, the show accepted spec scripts from writers who weren't on the staff. Can you talk about your experiences pitching to the show? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by that time, I'd, uh, that was after I'd uh, gotten through college. I'd graduated uh, shortly before this, uh, this all happened. I came across uh, an article in the old magazine Cinefantastique, sure. uh, which was uh, basically detailing how uh, Ronald Moore uh, came to uh, write for Star Trek. Uh, he was also he was a spec writer living out in L.A. He hadn't really had all that much professional experience, actually, and none whatsoever. And right. uh, he had uh, submitted uh, a couple of stories to them uh, through their open submissions policy. And I had absolutely no idea that you could do such a thing. And <laughs> as soon as I uh, heard uh, that about that, I said, well, shoot, heck, I can go ahead and do that. 
So I went ahead and banged out a couple of spec scripts. Uh, one of them was uh, an action-adventure uh, type thing in the mold of Die Hard, which absolutely <laughs> stood zero chance of being made. But uh, you know, sure. I was a real action-adventure kind of guy. And, you know, I kind of had to get that off my chest. Right. But as soon as I finished that, though, I uh, took a look at the types of stories that they said that they wanted and the types of stories that, uh, that I'd seen on Star Trek at that point. And that was kind of getting up into uh, pretty much where the third season had ended. And uh, they really seemed to have a, a, a big affinity for uh, ship shows and things that were more character generated, character oriented. Right. And you know, obviously, you know, with budgetary concerns and everything, you know, I know this kind of, you know, something that we're definitely looking for. So I wanted to go ahead and do something that was more character oriented. Right. So I came up with this idea uh, that I called Hallowed Ground, uh, which dealt with uh, the character of Jack Crusher, uh, whom we'd never seen before. Now, I'd always really been fascinated with uh, the relationship uh, between Captain Picard and Beverly Crusher as well, too. And it was one of those things that I felt that the series didn't play with nearly enough. Yeah. So I went, it was uh, all centered around uh, the planet where Jack Crusher had been killed years before. And uh, the Enterprise uh, gets uh, some indications that maybe he isn't actually dead and he's still alive and he's still marooned there. And it's uh, the whole process of going through and you know finding out what really happened to him. Uh, so I sent that off uh, to the show and I didn't think too much about it, but a few months passed by and then I'm at home uh, one day and the telephone rings and... Uh, I pick it up and said, hi, this is Lolita Jack Fasho from the Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, is this Mark Miller? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hi, how are you doing? So uh, they said that they uh, really liked the storyline and they thought that it was a pretty good uh, fit uh, in terms of uh, the type of style that they were looking for in Star Trek, although they were not buying that particular story for some reason. Um, I think they mentioned is that they really didn't want to fill in the, the, the Crusher backstory too much because I think sure. they probably wanted to uh, leave some room to play with that in the future if they wanted to. Uh, so they said, do you have any other stories to pitch? And I said, uh, yeah, sure, I'll come up with a few things. Um, can I come uh, fly out there and see you guys in a couple weeks? And they said, yeah, sure. So I got on a plane and I flew out to uh, the Paramount lot and uh, sat in the writer's room and pitched stories at them and probably had the worst case of anxiety attack I've ever had in my entire life. But <laughs> it was a pretty fascinating experience. Because when I flew out there, it was right after the third season. Uh, when uh, Michael Piller was uh, running the show. So, uh, yeah, he was actually the first person I met when I went out to the Hart Building on the Paramount Lots and uh, introduced myself and said, Hi, I'm Mark Giller. Oh, you're Michael Piller. Hey, we rhyme. <laughs> the guy never even cracked a smile. As, as I recall, he was the most serious-minded person I think I had ever seen ever met in my entire life. Huh. Uh, but Ron Moore was there as well, too, and I met him and uh, shook his hand. And uh, I think uh, Joe Minoski was there as well, too, and uh, Jerry Taylor uh, was in the room as well, too. So uh, it was definitely uh, some uh, good uh, creme de la creme uh, writing talent uh, that, that I met with that day. Let's talk a little about your novel, Hammerjack. Would you describe it as a cyberpunk novel? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really enjoyed uh, cyberpunk novels of uh, like uh, Neil Stevenson, William Gibson in particular, and uh, kind of wanted to uh, do something like that myself. And uh, this was about, uh, I guess, around 12, 13 years ago um, when uh, I was pitching that around. And I found a, a really good uh, literary agent uh, out in Los Angeles, or sorry, not uh, San Francisco, uh, who was looking to uh, break into uh, science fiction because uh, uh, she had mostly been uh, mysteries and things like that. So uh, she decided to go ahead and take that on and uh, ended up uh, getting me a, two offers, believe it or not. Cause I, this, it was actually the, the ninth novel that I had written. Uh, that you know, All the rest of them hadn't come anywhere really near even really being published. Uh -huh. And uh, she actually managed to get me a couple of offers. Uh, Ace uh, coughed up an offer, but uh, ultimately we went with uh, Bantam Spectra. And uh, they were kind of looking to revive cyberpunk uh, because it, as a genre, it had kind of fallen by the wayside and there really hadn't been all that many uh, books in that, in that particular uh, genre. 
And uh, it was, yeah, definitely cyberpunky. Probably not quite as long-haired as uh, the William Gibson stuff, because, again, you know, I still have a, a big affinity for action and adventure and whatnot. So it was primarily done as a, as a science fiction thriller, but uh, it had the, the, the cyberpunk tropes and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, but uh, it's primarily a science fiction action thriller type stuff. So it was a, a blast to write. Yeah, I've always enjoyed cyberpunk uh, as a genre myself, and I always wondered why it had to go away. Sure, it's very closely tied to the culture of the 80s, but it's not like Bruce Sterling came out and said, we're done, no more. Like, <laughs> I'm glad that people like you are still writing in that genre, because I really do like it a lot. Yeah, it probably helps that I, I'm stuck in the 80s, though. That's, uh, that was the <laughs> decade I grew up in. And, uh, you know, of course, we're talking about Star Trek The Next Generation. So well, that, 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 yes. No surprise. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, so why did you pick this episode to talk about today? Well, it uh, kind of speaks to uh, all of the things that uh, that I like in uh, not necessarily just science fiction, but uh, in, in in fiction generally. Um, I the Star Trek story that uh, that I wrote for uh, Seven Deadly Sins was uh, when I pitched that. I, I basically pitched that as a horror story set in the Star Trek universe, and I think that uh, conspiracy uh, shares a lot of those elements in it as well too. Um, the whole mood of the episode is incredibly tense. Uh, you know, the, the minute you turn that on, if, you, if you've never seen Star Trek The Next Generation before and you've got your impressions of what the show was all about based on that episode, uh, you'd be completely blown away and think, oh my gosh, this is, you know, just kind of spies and aliens and just this really feeling of dread. And uh, it was just, uh, for that reason, it was just uh, such an atypical episode, particularly after they'd been fumbling around in the first season trying to get the yeah. footing underneath them and trying to figure out what they were. And uh, you know, part of me, as the series went on, was always kind of hoping that maybe they would start going in more of that conspiracy-esque type direction with the rest of the series, which unfortunately they didn't do. Uh, but it was just uh, this wonderfully creepy uh, atmosphere, a wonderfully tense episode. Uh, it just builds uh, with just this ominous sense of dread throughout the entire episode until you get to this really literally explosive climax. And it just blew me away because I had never seen anything like that in Next Generation or any, any other Star Trek uh, incarnation before either. So uh, I just always enjoyed that episode for that reason because it was just so atypical and so, so gripping and so visceral. Yeah, it's certainly unique in, in the canon, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it provokes a lot of strong feelings, too, you know, in the years <laughs> since when I've read about uh, what people think of that episode, you know, I think either people either love it or they absolutely detest it. And uh, I just haven't fallen into that uh, former camp. But uh, I've met a lot of people who just didn't care for it all that much. I mean, I heard that, you know, Roddenberry was not a big fan of that particular uh, episode. either. Right, right. Yeah, because he always had this uh, utopian ideal of what (laughs) the Federation and what Starfleet were like and whatnot. And I always thought that that was just, you know, so much BS because, you know, it's just like it's, you know, it's a military outfit. You're going to have some bad apples in the bunch. People are still people. Human beings would be evolving beyond, you know, pettiness and greed and ambition uh, just because it's 300, 400 years in the future. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I've, I've heard a lot of the writers that kind of butted head with Roddenberry over the years uh, as a reason but because of that as well, too. Well, uh, we'll definitely be talking about that a little later as well. Uh, but first of all, I wanted to say it is the episode Conspiracy. It's the 24th episode of the first season. It first aired on May 9th, 1988. The teleplay was by Tracy Torme, who's a writer and executive story editor on the show's first and second seasons. Uh, he's the son of Mel Torme. He was the creator of Sliders, and we're going to talk about him a lot more in just a bit. The story was from Robert Sabaroff. He's a television writer who wrote the original series episode, The Immunity Syndrome. He also co-created the contemporary of that time, NBC series, Then Came Bronson. And it was directed by Cliff Bull, who directed many episodes of Next Gen, DS9, and Voyager. And the Bullian race, which appears for the first time in this episode, is named for him. 
The start date on this episode is given as 41775.5, and your assignment is, if you can, to give us a 25-word synopsis of Conspiracy. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, let me look this up on the, uh, the Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's basically... Uh, I uh, studied this episode pretty carefully because uh, the uh, the one Star Trek Next Generation uh, novel that I did write uh, called Stormfront, which was unpublished, um, that was actually one that uh, worked its way all the way up to, to the top over at uh, Pocket Books as well, too, before it was ultimately turned down. Uh, but it did weave in a lot of elements of uh, this particular episode, including uh, Captain Ricks, who plays a pretty prominent role in there, because I thought uh, it was just such a badass thing having a, you know the guy from The Hills Have Eyes in the Star Trek episode. <laughs> right, fantastic. yeah, right. But uh, basically, long story short is that uh, Walker Keel, an old friend of uh, Jean-Luc Picard, uh, sends him a mysterious message uh, asking to meet on a remote planet uh, called uh, Dipalics B. And uh, the two of them uh, meet down there along with a couple of other Starfleet personnel, uh, including another captain and Captain Ritz. And Keel intimates to Picard about uh, this very unusual activity that he's noticed within Starfleet. Uh, people getting shuffled around and commands being moved around and uh, kind of like it seems like pieces being moved around a chessboard. And he thinks that there's some kind of a conspiracy going on within Starfleet and he has absolutely no idea what's going on with it. So what's what what are we to do? And, of course, Picard has his doubts uh, because, you know, he's a Roddenberry man. So he thinks that, uh, the Federation, you know, we don't have people like that, to, you know, trying to pull the strings behind the uh, behind the scenes. Uh, but then that uh, Keel's ship uh, is blown up, and all of a sudden it seems like, wow, there's something to this. So uh, Picard and the Enterprise uh, go back to Earth to talk to the Starfleet about it, and uh, all that. Yep, that's a pretty complete. That's a pretty good pitch, I think, for the episode too. I, w- I would want to watch that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some interesting facts from the uh, memory banks for this episode. Uh, Captain Ricks, of course, is played by Michael Berryman. Uh, who, as you mentioned, is from The Hills Have Eyes and other things, plenty of other things. He's done so much genre work. He's so distinctive looking. I'm surprised that he didn't make any more appearances uh, in any Trek shows. Um, actually, I did read he did appear in, what was it, Star Trek IV? Uh, Star Trek IV, right. Yeah, very, right. very, very brief role uh, in that. But uh, yeah, I was uh, actually very, very disappointed that they didn't bring back uh, Captain Ricks in any subsequent episodes because he's such an interesting guy, you know, very, very intense and uh, yes was, absolutely yeah that was one of the reasons i wanted to use him as a as a character in my uh, star stormfront novel uh because uh, it was just you know literally he could walk into a scene and steal it by just standing there uh also uh the paramount prop department uh, never won to waste materials uh redressed admiral jameson's wheelchair from the episode too short a season to serve as remix chair in this episode and the desk in admiral quinn's guest quarters would serve as benjamin sisko's desk when he was at starfleet headquarters in ds9's fourth season <laughs> well never let it be said that let anything go to waste no, and there never wants to waste footage either. Uh, the exterior shots of Starfleet Headquarters come from Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Uh, and so as such, two Tellarites appear in the background, marking the only appearance of the Tellarites on Next Generation. Well, that is some pretty inside baseball stuff right there. Yeah, the t- I'm, I'm so sad because the Tellarites are, you know, all right, maybe not a well-developed race, but they're kind of forgotten. Like, they used to be uh, founders of the Federation. I think they've kind of retconned that. And so I'm hoping to see them in Discovery, like, learn a little more about them. Yeah, it should be interesting. They're the pig face guys. <laughs> uh, this is the first episode to show Earth and our moon in uh, The Next Generation. Uh, this episode won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Makeup for a Series. 
the parasites, of course, in this episode were designed by series designer Andrew Probert. Um, they never again appear on screen, but author S.D. Perry has brought them back in some novels. Um, she actually connects that connects them to Trill symbionts, um, and they're actually at war with the Trill in the novels. And then in Unjoined, uh, the authors of Unjoined reveal that the parasites are genetically modified Trill. Uh, it's very sensational. So they they do come back um, in the extended media. In some spin-off media, they're referred to as bluegills because Riker clearly uses the term bluegill at the end of the episode, uh, although it's unknown if he was referring to the species as a whole or just the literal literal bluegill that yeah, uh, comes out of the back of people's necks. out of the back of their necks. Yeah. Right, yeah. And I saw a fun chat on the Memory Alpha article talk page about that. Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, of course, it would make it a little difficult to uh, for people with short hair to uh, hide the fact that they've been infected. So maybe that was a uh, uh, one little little overlook that they had in the uh, in that concept. But yeah, they, that's uh, true. <laughs> they were thoroughly disgusting, though. And they, you know, when I when I saw them uh, crawling into Remick's mouth, and then when they phasered him, yes. and they exploded, and you had this big mother creature in there. You know, it definitely shades of alien there for sure. But it was it was, yes. it was delightfully disgusting, and uh, I was really surprised that. Uh, uh, they were allowed to get away with that level of violence uh, at that time in Star Trek Next Generation. I know it's so that's well, that's what I want to talk about. I mean, it's so different than what you'd usually get on Star Trek. And speaking of the violence, the episode was censored in the United Kingdom and Canada uh, for its content when it uh, when it plays. Um, but I wanted to talk about um, Tracy Torme. And there's a funny story. Well, it's not that funny about how this episode sort of came about in that I guess he so he as a writer and um you may or, or you may be familiar with this. He was different than the other writers. Um, he had some kind of personal relationship with Gene Roddenberry. He was not really on staff in the same way. He didn't have to go in and help break stories. You know, he wasn't in the, the writer's room. All he had to do was just deliver like three scripts a year, and he could go off and do his own thing. Yeah, and, as and as so I, I think that means he uh, was able to tell Maurice Hurley to kiss his butt. Yeah, or at least he tried to. Yeah, several <laughs> times, and. And so uh, he developed this script and supposedly, uh, you know, initially it was just going to be a flat out conspiracy, like a military coup. People inside Starfleet wanted to take over Starfleet. And um, as you had pointed out that, you know, we knew what happened. Uh, Gene balked at that idea. He did not want that idea because he thought that we all, we all get along in the 21st yeah. century. He said, that's not Starfleet. Starfleet would never, ever be that way. So Right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> right. And they had already kind of set this up uh, with coming of age that something was going on. But my question is, like, why they saved it by making it space bugs? Like, that's how they that's how they saved oh, that idea. Absolutely, because you know it. What I mean, it really, it kind of seems like a, a perfect uh, out uh, as far as Roddenberry is concerned. You know, he hated the idea, but uh, he liked Tracy Torme, so obviously he didn't want right. to reject the episode outright. So we just come up with. And actually, I, th- I believe it was uh, Maurice Hurley who did came up with that. Did come up with that idea. To change it to uh, alien bug things, uh, so that instead of it uh, being you know some uh, cabal of Starfleet officers you know operating in the background and trying to trying right. to take over, uh, they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, so it was the aliens that did it. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. So it kind of right, falls yeah. in the responsibility <laughs> of uh, having to uh, you know say that there are bad elements within Starfleet. And right. uh, you know, I did think that uh, probably out of all the things, you know, that was probably a cop out in a lot of ways. I, I probably would have preferred to have seen it. Um, as uh, Torme's original vision, uh, because, I mean, that would have set up, I mean, just this amazing arc that you could have taken throughout the rest of the series as well, too. Uh, but again, that was also a no-no. I mean, Paramount didn't want to turn, the, they would want to be able to strip the series in syndication, and they didn't want to have long-running story arcs, because I, I remember reading in uh, the, the, the 50-Year Mission, very, very interesting book uh, that was uh, just published, 
uh, went into great detail about that, about how the writers were always fighting to be able to do bigger stories and bigger arcs and things like that. But uh, Paramount just said, and Rick Berman in particular, when he took over, was like, no, 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 we just can't do it that way. So yeah. I think that certainly in conspiracy that was a that was a lost opportunity, but you know obviously that that was you know running into some sort of serious headwinds with the way they wanted to structure the series. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, but it, it does a, it did set up a, a you know some pretty interesting stuff, and you know that's one of the reasons <laughs> I, I really I, did, I really did like the episodes that uh, Torme penned. Uh, he just seemed like he had a pretty uh, pretty unique vision and a pretty unique style for a Star Trek writer. He really did, and you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I think there are ideas that are that are Trek, and there are ideas that aren't. And I guess if you do something that it, that isn't for long enough, then it will become Trek. But at this early time, they just decided, I don't think that that's the way we want to go. And he he wrote a lot of um, original um, ideas, um, like the Royale, the one where they go to the um, the fake hotel or whatever, and they have to like, play craps to to be able to escape. I mean, that's a very un Star Trek kind of show. Yeah, uh, you know, I, he probably it was a good thing that uh, he was involved in the series at uh, such an early time when it was really still kind of stumbling around and trying to figure out what it wanted to be. Uh, right. Because once uh, you know, certainly once uh, by the time Michael Pillar had come on board and they'd really kind of set into the formula of what Star Trek: The Next Generation was going to be. Uh, I don't think that they would have uh, allowed him to get away with things like that. So uh, I guess we were pretty fortunate that uh, he was around for the first and second seasons. You know, because, you know, as much as people uh, like to criticize the show for, you know, just really just stumbling around and not really knowing what it wanted to be, you know, kind of this feathered fish in space and, you know, still trying to figure things out. <laughs> I, I still think you, in those early episodes, though, you did see probably some of the, the best creativity they ever had on the show. Uh, because, you know, you had some writers like Torme who were just like, hey, what the hell, I'm going to, you know, go for broke here and then see what we can do. And, uh, you know, it just it really does make you wonder what the show might have been like uh, had some of those uh, currents been able to keep going. True. Although, you know, we get things like Minoski gives us masks uh, in like the seventh season. So <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, the episode that shall not be named. <laughs> yes. Um, and I also. That's an episode so bad, I'm surprised that Brandon Braga didn't write it. <laughs> Oh, whoa! Shots fired. <laughs> I, yeah, I just uh, I uh, I pitched to Brandon uh, one time over the phone, and I did not like the man. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Uh, well, and I also just kind of realized something as well. He, he created uh, Luxwana Troy. So another reason that yeah, yeah. So kind of clearly, it, he's friends with Gene, right? Character. He <laughs> <laughs> inflicted that person on us. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, yeah, it's all coming together now in my mind. I'm understanding. <laughs> that. Oh, I know. But well, he created the character, but I, I think it was definitely subsequent writers who uh, made her really, really irritating. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. He, uh, wrote, uh, he wrote, did he write Manhunt? Yes, he did. Yes, oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. And he will burn in hell for that. That was a fairly <laughs> funny episode. Uh, and again, you know, when they're trying to reach uh, beyond uh, the kind of the standard Star Trek imprint, you know, turn it into something that's a little bit more broad comedy. And uh, I, I did think that there were definitely some hilarious aspects of that. You know, he's chasing after the garden, he's hiding out in the holodeck, and of course, right. an opportunity for him to, you know, be Dixon Hill. So, so there were definitely right. some good aspects <laughs> of that. But yeah, as a whole, uh, Luwak's I could definitely do without. <laughs> that's the one that uh, Mick Fleetwood is in. Yes, steals the show, never says a word. Right? Yeah, as the, as the fish guy. Well, when I think about this episode, um, which I watched, you know, as a kid uh, when it was originally on, uh, I guess my first reaction is a guy's head blows up. I mean, I remember <laughs> seeing this as a kid, and I was like, "Whoa!" I mean, it is very dynamic, but it's hard to know what they're thinking. I mean, you mentioned uh, Hurley coming up with the idea for the the alien bugs or whatever. I know they were trying to fix the script after Gene balked um, at that coup angle, but how did they end up at head pinata filled with meat spiders? Like, 
how did they even get there? I, you know what? I mean, maybe uh, at that point, I, I don't exactly know what was going through uh, Tracy Tormey's mind at the time, uh, or whether, that, <laughs> whether he got rewritten or whether he rewrote it himself. Maybe he was imagining Maurice Hurley's head. Given what he was trying to do, I could kind of picture him just saying, oh, well, they're going to mess up with my script. And I, All right, I want to see what I can get away with here. Ah, uh-huh, sure, sure. Okay. <laughs> That's and a good point. Enough, they let him get away with that. I know. It's like, you know, when I was writing um, Revenants, uh, it was uh, Marco Palmieri, uh, the editor over at uh, Star Trek at the time, who brought me on to do that. He'd read uh, uh, my cyberpunk novels and thought that I'd be a good fit to uh, do a Borg story, since there, there's definitely some real cyberpunky elements involved in that. And uh, when I pitched that to him as a horror story uh, and kind of told him what I wanted to do, uh, he didn't balk at that at the least. And I was very surprised at that as well, too, because that is hyper violent story and uh, the whole idea was to you know kind of take the borg who had been sort of neutered you know throughout the, the voyager years and just you know turn them into badasses again and uh, sure. i thought the best way of doing that was just to you know pen an extremely violent story and uh surprise to surprise i mean uh, pocket let me get away with it so <laughs> i guess i did the same nice. thing uh, with this episode uh, back at paramount back in those days yeah uh, the parasites themselves are strange. Um, they're weird. They are kind of gross at times. Uh, and, and the effects are stop motion, which I, I really like uh, stop motion, but it's not done all that well here. Plus, they're practical effects. You know, they're in camera, so they can't be remastered for the Blu-rays. So they just – in fact, they look even worse in the Blu-rays because there's more detail. They just don't really come off all that well, sadly. Yeah, I know. You kind of wonder if they could actually reconstruct the scene and uh, then do it digitally by just completely redoing it. All, all oh, of it. boy, yeah. That would be pretty interesting. It'd probably I, really I, I would love to see that as well, too, uh, with the original series episodes, uh, with the remastered uh, digital editions and the uh, uh, computer-generated special effects and whatnot. are just wonderful to give a whole, whole new lease on life. It'd be interesting to see them do that with uh, some of the next-gen stuff, too. This episode introduces a lot of uh, sort of ancillary characters. Uh, none of whom ever really come back, which is too bad because they're kind of interesting. Of course, uh, Robert Schenken comes back as Dexter Remick, and Ward Costello is uh, back again as Admiral Quinn. I know, Remick is a paper pusher. Who would figure he'd be the big bad, right? I, yeah, that that is kind of a fun twist. Um, the, the problem, I think, with the episode is that the other bad guys, the other villains, aren't really villains at all. Like they're They're just not much of a threat. They're just... It's cool when Admiral Quinn starts ragdolling people around, but the other admirals are just standing around looking kind of tired. Yeah, I know. Maybe we could have probably done with less is more in uh, in this episode, maybe concentrating the, uh, the the threat on just a couple of characters. Uh, particularly, you know, if we'd uh, maybe focus more on Quinn since we'd met him in the previous episode. Uh, right. Remick as well, too. But, yeah. uh, you know, obviously it's conspiracy, so you can't have a conspiracy of, you know, just one of one. You have to have <laughs> right. a, a number of different people. So I, I suppose that they didn't have too much choice in going in that direction. It's just kind of too bad that uh, we weren't able to kind of serialize that over more previous episodes to kind of get a, a more of a feel for that organization and those people. But yeah, that's a constraint of the show. So, you know, what can you do? Yeah, that's not what they were doing then. But you've got uh, Vice Admiral Aaron, and he's kind of the Mike Pence looking guy. And <laughs> you've got uh, the, the Vulcan guy, Savar who is not a very good Vulcan. Like, he speaks of delight, and he seems to have emotions, and he can't even do the Vulcan neck pinch right. He grabs Riker, and Riker's just like, ah! It's like, that's not really what happens. He's supposed to fall down. <laughs> well, it was the alien inside of him. I guess he uh, right. didn't exactly know how to do the neck pinch, so he did the best that he could with it. Yeah, that's, but, uh, the, that's the headcanon there. Yeah, sure. I know, but uh, yeah, a Vulcan admiral, though, is like kind of an interesting concept. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I think so, uh, too. Um it's uh yeah Admiral Quinn he he must beat up half the main cast in this episode and he he throws Riker through a glass coffee table which has got to be one of the worst jobs in the 24th century a glass coffee table insurance investigator yeah. uh, a lot of those I things know. get he broken it safety glass or something Good grief. right yeah right <laughs> right exactly yeah. transparent aluminum have a transparent aluminum table 
Yeah, the uh, exactly. Uh, and the uh, Rear Admiral Savar does mention, um, I guess, in speaking of the creature's motivations once it's revealed to Picard, that they relish uh, the theater. Uh, of what they're doing, like they they kind of like um, templing their fingers, you know, and and <laughs> and I think that that is a good line. It's also a um, a line by Torme that excuses whatever else comes after that. Uh, <laughs> it's cheesy, but it works, and you know, it really does work. I remember freaking out as a kid because I thought, you know, when Riker walks in and stops Picard, I thought, oh crap, R- Riker's taken over. This is it. This is the end of the show. <laughs> you know, we're at the end of the thing anyway, the season. And now as an adult, I'm thinking, why does Riker have to get all the way in there? He play acts the whole thing he's got his gullet open ready to catch some worms that he's dropping in there and then he pulls uh, and starts shooting i mean let's ring every second out of this you think the parasites enjoy their drama you haven't met will Riker. oh i know you figured that uh, you know obviously if they could beam down they could beam up so you know probably the most expeditious thing would have been just to go ahead and beam everybody up and put them keep them in stasis to like figure out what they wanted to do with it but exactly yeah, yeah. But again, you know it's just like if, if you think too hard about it uh, you know then it's just like no, no it's definitely let's go ahead I'm going down there. Yeah, right. But obviously, I guess you know, the aliens have a have a sense of humor as well, too. You know, when uh, yeah. you know Quinn's uh, grabbing Riker and crushing his arm, it's like vitamins do the body good. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was a, that was a nice little throwaway line right there. Yeah. Um, I guess the practical uh, the practical explanation for the Riker thing would be that you know he needs the bad guy's hands full of worms so he can get some unanswered shots off. You know, you came pretty close to eating some worms there, buddy. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I still don't understand. They're inhabiting a human host, though, and you figure they still want to eat you know cheeseburger and fries and whatnot. I don't know where the uh, the, the worm thing comes in, but uh, you know, yeah, that's <laughs> probably one of those things that Torme thought. Oh, that's disgusting. I'll see that they'll never let me get away with this. I'll just put it in there and see what happens. Yeah, it's part of those kind of uh, creepy crawly elements that that uh, Torme is kind of st- sticking into this thing. And yeah, and that's, what, now that you... that's when the show goes from you know being this uh, you know political thriller over to straight horror, which again is, is is something that you see very very little of in uh, in Star Trek: The Next Generation as well. Too, I think the only other time that they came even close to a mood like that, which is another episode that a lot of people hate, uh, was uh, Night Terrors. Remember that one? Yes, I do. One moon. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, that I, that was an episode I really liked because I thought that the uh, the mood of it was absolutely fantastic, and uh, you know had a very very good sense of dread building throughout that whole thing. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I, again, it's another one of those reasons I don't know why people don't like that that particular episode. Again, maybe it's because it's so atypical, because it's so uh, kind of straight up more of a of a horror show. I mean, you know, the original series episodes like Wolf in the Fold, you know, I loved those because it was like whenever that came on, it was like you know an extra Halloween for me when I was a kid, and I absolutely loved. Oh sure. Those. So, the, you know, kind of the scary, uh, the scarier stories were, were ones that always appealed to me. And I guess it's, uh, you know, kind of why I tried, decided to take that approach when I finally got a chance to uh, publish a Star Trek story of my own. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned um, that thing about Torme trying to get away with something because you're right. It does. It, he, his original concept is political thriller, and then he goes straight over into uh, a horror, Grand Guignol kind of, kind of horror. So uh, I, I like to think that he was at his typewriter going, ooh, now I'm going to do this. And then uh, the guy's, that guy's head's going to explode. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he was just hacked because his original story got changed. <laughs> <laughs> sure, right. Uh, I was thinking about uh, why can't Troy just – why isn't this over the second Troy gets within range of these guys? Um, you know, she should be able to te- telepathically tell that they are planning something. Yeah, I would think so unless – well, she's an empath, so she uh, senses emotions, uh, you know, yeah. not really actual thoughts. So maybe they've uh, the aliens have a, a great way of uh, concealing that uh, and they, they don't provoke an emotional response in the, in the people that they take over. 
plus, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like if, if they're puppeting these victims and there's nothing to sense from the victim, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Like a, they really seem to be having a good time. So, you know, that's a... Yeah, right. <laughs> that maybe just kind of throws everybody off. If you're, oh, well, alien conspiracy, you know, they're going to be very serious-minded and full of, you know, gusto and tension and everything. It's like, no, no, we're just having the time of our lives here. <laughs> right, yeah. I sense that they're very happy and they love worms, Captain. Um, is there a scene moment or character that really stands out for you in this show? Um, I loved the interplay between Walker Keel and uh, Jean-Luc Picard in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you can definitely, you know, obviously there was a lot of history between the two men, uh, and you know, which remained largely unexplored. And, you know, again, throwing, uh, you know, Beverly Crusher obviously knew him as well, too, because they were, uh, they were all, they all knew each other when, uh, when Jack was still alive. Uh, right. That was probably the thing that, uh, that I liked the most in terms of the character interplay. Uh, because again, I, I was a big fan of teasing the relationship between uh, Crusher and Picard, and again, that was another one of those things that I really wish that they'd done more with during the course of the series. Uh, because I did think that I did think that Crusher was a, an interesting character, uh, woefully underused, um, and I think that they uh, that they probably should have done more with her, and especially particularly her relationship with Picard as 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 the series went on. So seeing any any little bits and pieces like that that, that pop up in the series uh, during the course of this run were, were ones that I liked because uh, that was something I really wanted to see more of. Yeah, they really seemed to push, especially in the early seasons, that um, connection. Uh, Picard would always run into a buddy or somebody that knew Jack Crusher or knew Beverly. And, uh, yeah, it would have been interesting to see that developed a little more. Oh, um, yeah, you know, you think about, uh, the, you know, just the way he felt about it, too. You know, obviously he cares about the woman, but he was very, very good friends with, with her husband who had died. And, you know, that, that kind of sense of torn loyalties and, and whatnot would have been, you know, they played on it a little bit. They introduced it, but, you know, then they just seemed to largely drop it. And, yeah. you know, by the time around, well, we'll guess from around season four or season five came along, they just didn't do anything with it at all. And then, you know, of course, at the very end of the series, they kind of, they spoke to it, that they'd gotten married and then gotten divorced and whatnot. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's just like, what? What? Now you're going to do this to me? Give me a break. <laughs> yeah. I really like, uh, I mentioned this before, like, the guy's head blows up, but I also like... Uh, yeah, you uh, his head blew up. <laughs> well, you had nightmares about that, didn't you? Yeah, I think I did. Uh, how weird Remick is, and, and then they have the thing where he stands up and his, his neck is sort of bulging, and, and, he's, uh, and he says, we seek peaceful coexistence. I gotta tell you, guy, you're gonna get phasered down. That's what's gonna happen. I'm telling you, though, the, the aliens have a hell of a sense of humor. I mean, oh, they that do. Was, that was him just, he was laying it all out there on the line and having a good old even when he was <laughs> <laser>. <laughs> I know. Maybe he thought, oh, the jig's up. At least I'm going to get a good line here going out. Oh, I know. I know. It's just like, yeah. <laughs> I definitely find them a lot more interesting than the trill. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, there's a lot of things that in this episode that are funny, uh, either intentionally or non-intentionally. Um, we usually talk about our favorite jokes or comedy bits from the episode, but I wanted to talk about the literal joke in this episode. Um, they do one of those things, which along with, I think, souffle humor and a wino seeing something unbelievable and then like looking at his bottle and dumping it out, you don't really see a lot of uh things any bits on tv anymore where somebody's like finishing a joke and then everybody's like ah, ha, 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 and we don't hear what the joke is I and mean, they've done this a few times on the show is it ever funny when they do that i mean i've tried to back form jokes from these punchlines that they give like the ferengi and the clown suit bit and i can never think of anything that would be funny about these jokes oh i never thought there was anything particularly funny about the ferengi period thank you for bringing that up <laughs> <laughs> i had actually largely forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah but uh yeah well star trek star trek and humor uh you know 
back in the original series when you know when they actually started doing some of those more broad comedy episodes, you know, which you know began with the trouble with Tribbles, and they realized, wow, these characters can actually be funny. You know, they right. they did uh, they did the comedy pretty well uh, there because I, I think you know the the character relationships lent themselves better to that. Uh, Next generation though was always a heck of a lot more stiff. So I think any time uh, they uh, tried to get these uh, very very dignified characters to uh, you know kind of go off and do something funny, it uh, often just came off as being very very flat or just kind of stomach kind of stupid or unfunny. It's like trying too hard. So yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't think that they they did that very well on Next Generation at all. Really, I mean, you, you got a couple of bright spots here and there. Like I said, I mean, there were a couple of good good things from Manhunt. Uh, you know, and I think that uh, kind of speaks well to Tracy Torme and his versatility as a writer. But uh, yeah, I, writers on Next Generation, I just I don't think were very funny at all. Any anytime they tried to do something uh, broadly comedic, like uh, any <coughs> Rice Up episodes, <coughs> it just fell flat <laughs> on its face. Yeah, um, I think that you're right. I think that's the downside of Gene's vision is that these, uh, like you said, very distinguished characters uh, can't can't let it all hang out sometimes. Uh, but sometimes we get Cupid. Yeah, Cupid was a good episode. Captain's Holiday was a pretty good episode as well, too. Um, that played, and even had a Ferengian. I was really amazed. I actually enjoyed that episode. <laughs> that's uh, right. But uh, yeah, I think that those are probably the exceptions that prove the rule. <laughs> Right, right. I like how they're still playing uh, with Data's characterization here. Um, later, I mean, him trying to be human and all that, that's that's going to continue throughout the series. But the way that he pursues that um, is interesting. And they have a little side scene that I think in any other case would be cut from a show where he's like talking to the computer and he's reading things. And he realizes that he's sort of talking to himself and he gets really excited about the fact that that's a really human thing to do. I just thought that that was a little character moment that might've got lost in, in a later uh, season episode. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that that probably wasn't written into there as well too. That was uh, all Brent Spiner. Uh, Cause I, I do know that uh, I've read during the course of the series. I mean, he was always trying to mine certain little nuggets out of there. He's very, oh, very, very good, very good character actor. And you know, by that point, I mean, early on in the episode, early on in the series, it's pretty amazing that uh, that he had that uh, uh, much of a, a knowledge of the character and what he wanted it to be. So you definitely have to give him credit for that. Sure. Uh, so let me ask you, as somebody who's a fan of this episode and, and these horror elements, what would your pitch be to make Trek uh, more horror centered or, or to bring more horror in? We've had the Borg before. And of course, you've in your you've dealt with that in your short story, your novella. Um, but what, what would you do uh, to tr- try to see those elements uh, be brought in? Uh, I know it's kind of hard to say. I mean, you know, I guess uh, pretty much just what I did when I when I pitched the, the story Revenant uh, to Pocket. Uh, was, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I, I approached that from the standpoint of, you know, there, it was just ancillary characters from the Star Trek universe. There was only, uh, only, uh, Nick Locarno, uh, was really the only established character that, uh, okay. the universe of the yeah, yeah. Story. So it was kind of nice. I was able to uh, go in there and bend my own characters and then I could do whatever I wanted to them. And I didn't have to worry about series continuity or anything like that. So, sure. uh, you know, I guess, uh, Really, that's probably the only way that you can do that, uh, you know, sort of go off in sort of like a Rogue One direction, except for Star Trek, where, you know, you've got your own set of characters in your own little universe and that you can play around with and you can do whatever you want with it. Uh, I think that, uh, yeah, if I were going to be doing, a, you know, certainly a series-oriented Star Trek or something like that, uh, yeah, I'd probably go in, in a direction like that. You know, maybe you can just kind of have a side story with uh, with uh, characters that are apart from the, uh, the main ones who have to survive week to week. And you actually put them into uh, real danger, and then you really don't know what's going to happen to them from uh, from episode to episode. Yeah, and I think that um, 
body horror might be a good way to go, simply because it's based in biology and science. If you had some characters that were trapped on a ship and they're they're getting sick and dying one by one, and they have to find a way to stop it, like something like that. Oh yeah. Um, I also the problem is is that uh, since it's a TV show, these characters have to come back week after week, and to really do horror, you need to have stakes. Yeah. And if nobody nobody can die, then there's the stakes are really low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, yeah, you're kind of trapped with that convention. And you know that you have the guest star who shows up, and they're going to get killed. I mean, oh yeah, they're gone. Just, yeah, everybody knows. Oh yeah, so here it's just another red shirt. You know, we're going to do something really disgusting to him. Any, uh, anytime some guys not in... really horror. I mean, that's just kind of. Uh, so, I mean, to have true horror, yeah, you really have to be able to uh, invest in the characters and, and, and care about what's going to happen to them and have a real uncertainty about what's going to happen to them as well, too. But episodic television uh, being limited that way, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to do. I mean, I guess unless you're The Walking Dead and, you know, you can kill off whoever you want. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, unless it's terrible. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, whenever somebody shows up and, oh, he's one of my oldest friends, you know that guy's gone by the end of the episode. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you may as well, well put a red shirt on him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, as we come to the end of the show here, did you have any uh, parting shots or last thoughts about this episode? Um, it's still, looking at it, even it, even though it's been, oh gosh, probably about 20 years uh, since I'd seen it last, you know, I, I studied up on it uh, in, in preparation for the podcast here. Um, it aged really well, and I have to say that that is not true of a lot of Next Generation, uh, which is kind of interesting because I, you know, I still sit down and I watch uh, the original series uh, remasters with my kids, and you know, they're uh, they're both teenagers, young teenagers, and yeah, and my daughter absolutely loves it, and it's yeah. you know, and those really bear up well over time. And obviously, you've got your occasional clunkers here and there, you know, your uh, in the children's several years, Fox Brain or whatnot, mostly you know those third season, <laughs> third season ones. But uh, by and large, I think original Shrek holds up very, very well. A lot of Next Generation uh, doesn't. Uh, I feel a little differently about Deep Space Nine because uh, I think that uh, they were definitely grittier, and I think it holds up a little bit better. You know, with with Star Trek Next Generation, you know, a lot of it does kind of seem you know sort of eighties era cheesy type stuff. But Conspiracy is one of those episodes I, I do think that holds up remarkably well. Um, you know, you could put that up there with, uh, you know, some of the best of, the, of that Star Trek had to offer, along with Yesterday's Enterprise or Best of Both Worlds, uh, which, you know, those are just still amazing to watch even after all of these years. And Conspiracy definitely strikes me as, as that kind of episode as well, too. There's uh, Here's a question for you. Um, do you think that it's Gene's influence that kept cyberpunk out of the development of Next Generation? I mean, it was made in the 80s. I can't believe there isn't somebody jacking into the data nodes or, or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Computers yeah, are almost an afterthought on the yeah, show. Yeah, that is actually kind of an interesting thing that, uh, that there wasn't more uh, stories about uh, the merging of the human beings and technology. You know, yeah. you had that with, with the Borg. Uh, but right. in terms of human beings uh, going in that direction, yeah, I, I was really, really surprised about that. But yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all, too, because I, I know that, you know, certainly from my own experience with the show back in those days and uh, from reading about it uh, pretty extensively uh, since then, that Roddenberry was a very limiting uh, factor on uh, the development of that show. And because of his insistence that everybody be perfect and that there would be no internal conflict between the characters. Uh, and that human beings had somehow evolved beyond pettiness and jealousy and ambition and everything else. <laughs> right. uh, really, not only, you know, I know the, a lot of the writers got extremely frustrated with it because it's like, well, if you don't have conflict, you don't have drama, what the hell are we supposed to do with this? Uh, but in terms of, yeah, taking it in directions that uh, would have been a lot more interesting, uh, yeah, I, I would say so. And you can definitely see that as well, too. I mean, just look at what the, uh, what the, what the happy writers crew over at uh, Deep Space Nine was able to do with that. 
uh, once the, they didn't have, you know, so many people peeking over their shoulders and with Rodney out of the picture and, you know, with, uh, with Rick Burn largely leaving them alone to do their own thing, uh, they yeah. accomplished some pretty amazing stuff over there. So, yeah, yeah, you know, it does, it does make you shake your hand and wonder what, what might have been. But on the other hand, though, if it hadn't been uh, for Roddenberry and his vision, uh, nobody would have ever been there in the first place. So, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, as far as my opinion of the episode, I, it's fun. I enjoy it. it. It's fun to specifically kind of look back at it and maybe sometimes shake your head. There's a lot of creativity on display, which is great. And they're appropriating things from uh, like Body Snatchers and Alien. But I think they do it in a, in a kind of Trek way and do it with style. And it's fun to see the characters. Sometimes I can't believe what I'm seeing, but I think the characters can't believe what they're seeing sometimes. Yeah. Like when that thing comes out of Remick, they both look at each other like, what show are we on? What is this? And then they and just it blast it. Of course. That. I mean, a TV series uh, by their very nature, when they're on for a long time, gets stale and, uh, you know, you really have to right. shake things up. And, you know, I think it makes it fun for the actors, fun for the writers and fun for everybody. Well, uh, speaking of shows uh, that are going on for a long time, Star Trek is coming back, of course, with Star Trek Discovery uh, this fall. So, fingers crossed, we hope. Uh, do you have an opinion? Are you looking forward to Discovery? Yeah, I haven't actually read too much about it because, uh, uh, you know, Paramount's are pretty tight-lipped about it. So you'll hear a few yeah. uh, sneaky things here and there. Uh, but I have uh, very, very high hopes for it. Uh, big, big fan of uh, Brian Fuller. I think he's a, a very talented writer, a good visionary. Loved Hannibal. Just absolutely incredible series. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and obviously he's not shy with dealing with the horror elements. So I've got right. a lot of hope of that uh, that's going to turn out to be something pretty, pretty special, pretty spectacular. Let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? <laughs> oh, James T. Kirk. Absolutely. He's timeless. He, he is timeless. Uh, you know, it's just that's the character I grew up with. That's, uh, you know, the, the guy that, uh, that I was always rooting for when uh, when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, it's just. You know, once uh, once you've kind of gone a classic Trek, uh, that's your formative experience. I, I think that uh, you just don't have any choice. It's it's got to be got to be James Kirk. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess you can put me in uh, put me in the computer core. That's what I do for a living. Sure. They never really show the, the computer's almost an afterthought on the show. I mean, it does what they ask it to, but you never you wonder how they work and uh, if you can how you reprogram them. If there's hackers in their universe, uh, those those missing cyberpunk elements that we talked about. Oh yeah, yeah. Those actually uh, the computer cores figure pretty prominently in my unpublished uh, Star Trek Next Gen. Oh really? Okay, uh, sure. Yeah, but also in uh, Revenant as well too, uh, because uh, Nick Locarno has become uh, something of a, a computer hacker. So he uses okay. his skills to uh, take out a, a starship. So it's pretty fun stuff. Well, Anson Giller, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at at EIST pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at uh, hammerjack.net. Uh, that's where I do my uh, blogging and various posting. And uh, I've got a listing about all of the uh, great stuff that I've written and bad stuff that I have written and everything in between. Uh, didn't you – a lot of those scripts that you were working up uh, to pitch to Paramount, you, you've got them up on your site, right? Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact. So if you want to go, uh, go back in time and uh, check those out and see Star Trek episodes that never got made, you can do that too. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining me. My pleasure. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.